to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam, and Andy, in his first time as a guest on the show. Andy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. You thought you could get rid of me, but you couldn't. I'm still here. <laughs> first time guest. First time first guest. First time guest. Long time listener. First time guest. Yes. This week, we are starting Spooktober 3, Son of Spooktober. That's We've gotten to the Son of Spooktober part of this franchise. We're a franchise. We're a franchise now. Is it... Does it have to be three films in order for something to be a franchise? Hmm. Coming soon, Monkey Off My Backlog action figures <laughs> and the home podcast recording playset brought to you by Yeti, <laughs> makers of fine audiovisual products and the Monkey Off My Backlog playset. I was actually going to go with from Acme, fine podcasting products that definitely no, won't blow up in your face. The action figures are made by Hasbro. Oh, I see. Well, it was really a bidding war between Hasbro and Kenner, but the Kenner ones are so small. They wouldn't interact well with the playset. I'm so excited. You all know that Spooktober is one of my favorite times of year that we do. It's all about focusing on that horror. It's all about focusing on the spooky things in life. This week, we are discussing two of the big names in meta-horror. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson by looking at two of their individual films, New Nightmare and The Faculty, as well as their infamous collaboration, Scream. But first, before we get to talking about the films itself, I did want to talk a little bit about meta horror and what it means, what's so appealing about it, and what are its limits. So Andy, since you are our guest, let's start with you. What is meta horror? What do you think of when you think of meta horror? So I actually have a meta horror scale. Ooh, okay, let's hear it. And that scale goes from Your Next, which is a movie that is that can be easily watched on its own as a horror movie, home invasion type thing. But there's lots of in-jokes and nods and winks to people who are already familiar with it. So it is a movie that can stand on its own as a horror movie. But if you know, you know. Then you have other films uh, that will go all the way up to Cabin in the Woods, where it really almost can't stand on its own as a horror movie. You have to know to appreciate, you have to know the nudges and the winks to appreciate it. That's a pretty good scale, I think, actually. Although it does beg the question, what's the difference between meta horror and parody? I would say that parody is where you cannot, uh, it does not stand as a horror by itself. Scary movie is what I think of. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. But then I was like, I don't know if that's actually meta horror. I think it's more of a straight up parody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's focused on uh, being as a comedy. Although I do think good parodies are able to stand alone as whatever they're parodying. But Oh, absolutely. Sam, what's your definition of meta horror? Well, my definition of meta horror, I was going to say it's the Jamie Kennedy experiment, but that's actually a show. It is Scream, I think. I think the end of the spectrum would be Scream rather than Cabin in the Woods. And and partially the reason for that is I don't like Cabin in the Woods. I think the third act is trash. Okay. But how would you define meta-horror? I would define that as Jamie Kennedy's character in Scream. Okay. The one who is telling you the rules of the movie while the movie's happening around him. 
That is the most possible level of meta you can get. So what's so appealing about meta horror? Why is this an established genre that people keep coming back to? I mean, two of the films that we're going to talk about, New Nightmare and Scream, are films that people list in like their top 10 horror films. Why is this such a enduring subgenre of horror? It's popular because I think horror movies are, one, they're a place for young talent to, to get in, right? They're usually lower budget. And these younger people are usually pretty creative with what they do. And being creative, being students of film, they want to do something new, something different. And making horror movies about horror movies is is one of the things that they can do by showing, uh, you know, almost like a almost like the film student that everybody's thinking of. You know, by showing that they know they they know these things, they know the rules, they've dissected this, uh, they get to do this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's popular because it's fun. You know that what you just said made me think of a couple of months ago when we did the camp episode with Matt. This idea that like there's a lot of criticism of camp. And one of the things that a lot of people say about camp is that you can't do it unless you love the thing that you're camping. Like it's not a parody. It's something to show that you truly understand it and you are poking at it, but you're not necessarily making fun of it. I feel like maybe that's the appeal of meta horror is this idea of like, like Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson clearly love horror. They clearly love it as a genre but they are able to take that love and transfer it, like you said, into a queering of it, a discussion of it, like some some kind of like meta reference to it. It's the kind of horror that is interesting for people who like horror movies and for people who, if you've seen one, you've seen all of them. In other words, if I'm not the biggest fan of horror movies, and I'm not, I still like meta horror movies because there's the commentary on it. I don't need to see 25 horror movies. I can watch two and be happy. So the meta horror appeals to both kinds of people. I mean, I think there is that like real nerdiness about horror in it, but it is also very easily digestible because it is so self-explanatory in a lot of ways to like people who are maybe new to the genre or who are just casual fans of it. What would you say the limits of meta horror are? When does it become trite or not yeah like not a horror not a good horror movie or just not a good movie i think it's it's the minute that the haha i'm so clever that i you know ha i'm so clever i'm i'm the film student who understands the real thing and you dumb viewer haven't even thought of uh thought of these connections it when it comes off as that you, you, you know it it becomes ineffective when Everyone's not in on the joke. To me, that's you just described the third act of Cabin in the Woods perfectly. Like to me, that's it. Like it eats its own tail at the end, and it's like I don't, I know what you're doing, and I hate it. See, for for me, the the end of Cabin in the Woods really worked. But Sam, may, maybe you would maybe you would appreciate a horror movie called Resolution. What's, What's that? that? It's a a horror movie that I feel like did a better job of Cabin in the Woods than Cabin in the Woods. So Sam might appreciate that actually. Might. No, no, like, like, like I, I legitimately think he might. Yes, uh, and it was directed by uh, Aaron Benson and Justin Moorhead, the guys who did oh, half your faves. of Night. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we all know Andy appreciates a good Benson and Moorhead. But if we've been keeping up with the MCU, 
I think they've they've been introduced to a much wider audience. Although that's relative considering the reach of that particular show and of that particular streaming service, but still probably more eyes than before. Well, let's go to our first film that we're going to talk about, which is the one that I specifically watched this week, which is New Nightmare. Also known as Wes Craven's New Nightmare. It came out in 1994, which is why I have it listed here first, because it came out chronologically. Even though we're not doing these movies chronologically, I thought it would be a good place to start. The other reason I chose this is because the ni- I did The Nightmare on Elm Street for our first Spooktober, the first installment in the Spooktober franchise. In the what franchise? Spooktober. It was just known as that originally. Yeah. So yeah, I did that on uh, our first Spooktober and... Although this is the seventh in the Nightmare franchise, it also works as a standalone film and a sequel to the original. I actually haven't seen the other five since I watched The Nightmare on Elm Street, but not only was I assured that you could watch this as just like a sequel to the original, I also, in doing research for this film, realized that this was the second one that Wes Craven directed. He did not direct the other five, even though he has writing credits on several of them. And Scream makes reference to this. Yes, exactly. Uh, so does this film, actually. It talks a lot about Wes Craven's involvement in the Nightmare franchise altogether. Quick summary before we get into a discussion of it. This movie is about Heather Langenkamp, who was the star of the Nightmare series. Like She is the person who plays Nancy in the original, and Heather Langenkamp is here playing a version of herself. She begins to have nightmares that Freddy Krueger, the villain of the movies, is stalking her and her family, along with other members of the Nightmare series cast and crew. After her husband dies under suspicious circumstances and her son Dylan begins to act strangely, Heather starts slowly realizing that Freddy is trying to break out of the fictional realm of the movies into the real world itself. So right away we're hit in the face with like the meta horror of this film because it is literally about the star of the film having made all six of the other films. Yeah. Six of the other films just trying to like live her life. And then she's sucked into what is essentially another movie about Freddie. And so like, it is interesting in the way that this is a movie about making nightmare movies. Specifically, it is about the cast and crew of these movies being terrorized by their own creation. And it's also really About the double tap, right? Yes. Because at the end of the last movie, Freddy's dead. Except he's not. Because you always have to double tap in a horror movie, right? Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of references to that where they're like, Freddy's dead. Freddy died. But then there is this idea. There's a lot of commentary on Nightmare as a franchise, which makes sense because this was Wes Craven's attempt to bring the franchise back to what he had originally envisioned, especially the character Freddy, who he thought had become really cartoonish. And he did this by redesigning the character's look and the claw, which I almost started laughing at the look. I'm glad he kept the sweater. But you remember, Sam, that halfway through watching this movie, I was like, wait, does he have leather pants on? Like, it was like a very strange moment where I was just like, it's obvious that he was trying to make this character like edgier and creepier, but it almost comes across again as comedic because it's like, oh, this is the real Freddy. He's wearing leather pants. So like, you know, it's He just listens this, to Depeche mode. Yeah. It's and he wears like a, a trench coat in this version too. So it's it's very funny. But there are also like these references to the fact that this franchise has really gotten away from Craven. There's a moment where he talks about how he's writing a new script 
And the reason he's writing this film, that is the film that we are watching within the film, is that he hasn't had any really good nightmares for the last 10 years. And so, like, there is sort of this meta commentary on what happens when a franchise is being taken away from its creator, like what happens when it kind of goes away from what the creator wants. It's a pretty fascinating film from that perspective. Like, you know, it's him trying to commentate on the franchise and on his role in it at the same time. Which, by the way, I should mention, he is he plays himself in this film. He plays himself in two scenes of the film, I think. This is, I think, the first draft of Scream. A lot of the ideas from this end up in Scream explored more fully to the extent very early on, you learn that, that Heather is getting prank calls. You know, somebody calls her up and says, hello. You know, and I expect it's the same voice. It's the exact same voice. I was like, ask her if she likes scary movies. And I actually looked it up. So Roger Jackson does the voice in Scream for all of the movies, one through five so far. There is no credited voice in the phone calls of New Nightmare. Some people think it's Robert England himself. It doesn't really sound like him. But I think that uh, the the phone call voice in Scream is meant to sound like this voice. Yeah, it is very, very similar. It's not the she's same person, these... but I think it's meant to sound the same. Yeah, she's getting these like creepy phone calls that are like, Freddy's coming or, you know, like all that stuff. And it does it does sound a lot like Roger Jackson. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Roger Jackson. Back in the day when we talked about Nightmare on Elm Street, I believe it was you who talked about this original version of Dream Warriors that he wanted to do, where it was, you know, they 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 squatted up and went after him. Right. It was a horror movie from Freddy's perspective. Right. They went on offense and went into his dreamscape. And so this this movie has Heather going into his dreamscape. Like he does kind of a version of this original conception of dream warriors. They still don't squad up, but she goes in and and really does end up going on offense. It rem- and it has a lot of a lot of Bruce Campbell in it at the end. I suppose we should mention spoilers, but when when she goes into his dreamscape at the end, the dreamscape just attacks her in a way that's very reminiscent of the forest and the and the shed and all the things that just start attacking Bruce Campbell and Evil Dead. It's very similar. I think it actually might work better here, though, just because this is supposed to be dream logic, right? And, and one of the things that I really loved about the original film is the way that Wes Craven just really embraces dream logic and the things that happen in nightmares. So like there's this scene in this film where she's trying to run up a set of stairs to get to Freddy, who is like menacing her son. And she can't, it like the stairs start grabbing her legs. Like she's moving so slowly. And that feels like a dream that we've all had, right? Where you're like trying to run away or run towards something and you suddenly can't. You're just moving so sluggishly and you you can't get away. Like those moments, I think, really ground this, really ground something that is like completely abstract. <laughs> like I don't know how you can ground something that is essentially a dream world like a proto dream world in reality but it feels grounded in reality because we've all like experienced like different versions of these nightmares one of the things that i 
really liked about this film was its references to cosmic horror and it specifically because the whole premise of this film is that and, and Wes Craven himself explains this to Heather is that Freddy is actually this like ancient horror that existed like long before the the earth did and the idea is is that it feeds on like innocence and loss of innocence but the only way you can trap it is in a really good story. So the idea is, is that this ancient horror has been trapped in the character of Freddy from the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's what has caused this like reprieve that Earth has had from this ancient evil. But now that Freddy's dead, now that he's died in the last film, it's trying to like break out of the story back into our realm. And Heather acts as this sort of gatekeeper because she played Nancy in the original. And so... It's the, it felt very much like a Pennywise type of threat, like this idea of this ancient horror that comes back every so often, and you just have to like figure out how to trap it. Well, it's a shame they didn't just go like a little farther with that and point out that this cosmic horror originally was able to occupy itself in Freddy Krueger, not just because that's what happens, but because the, the parents you know, created him, remember? In right, the, in that's the right. first movie. Like, they, I wish they'd gone a little farther to, to link that up. Because you do get references to the first movie, a lot of references. Yeah. Like, and I like that they're not overplayed. They're just there. You know, there's a scene where she's running through the halls of a hospital and she says, fuck your hall pass, which is definitely a a reference to the first film. And there's a scene where she has the coffee pot next to her bed, which is one of my favorite parts of the first film when she pulls the entire coffee pot underneath her bed. Like there's some really good stuff in here that, that works pretty well. And I also really liked how the film slowly forces Heather to play Nancy. Like it slowly forces her to be in situations where she has to basically act the same way that this character acts. And I think Heather Langenkamp, who I I honestly don't know that much about her other work, but the idea is is that she is, this movie is forcing her to interact with this character that she is most famous for and highlights kind of the differences between her as a person, even though I know the Heather she's playing is also a character. It's sort of forcing her to play the differences between Heather and Nancy, and it highlights the tension between actors and the characters that they play in a way that I found very interesting. There's a really fun scene toward the end that that really puts her back in the world of the first movie, and she doesn't realize what's happening at first, even though she's the one who starts it. Did you catch she called him Fred Krueger? That's right. Which is the character's Freddy Krueger. Everybody knows him as Freddy Krueger. But that moment when she calls him Fred Krueger is supposed to take you back to the first movie. And she misses it. Right. And you could miss it watching it. But then the scene keeps going. And by the time that scene's over, you understand what's happening. But there are different points where you might pick it up. I know that there's something that you don't like. You like the cosmic horror element. I know there's a big horror element that you didn't like. So my critique of this film is I don't like the creepy kid trope in horror films. I think it's overused in a lot of ways. There are certain films that do it and do it well, but this is not one of them. I don't think it works as well in this film. Dylan is fine, but I feel like it's just hit a little bit too hard, this idea that like, Heather is a mom and her motivations are that she's a mom. Like it, it just like doesn't like 
work for me as well. There's too much scene work done by Dylan. I was less interested in him. Like, I'm just like, no, I don't care about him. I care about Heather. Like, why is he like such a huge character in this? Like, I mean, it's creepy, I guess, but it just, it doesn't work for me. I wanted there to be more Heather. I wanted there to be more uh, Freddie. I wanted there to be more anything else but this kid. So it was just so annoying. So Andy, I want to ask you this because... This this role is just Danny Torrance again. Mm-hmm. And so I know you just finished reading High Fidelity. So, Andy, top five kids in horror. Top five kids in horror. Okay. Number one, the pair from Jurassic Park. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Number two, the kid from Orphan. Ah, or the yes. orphanage or... Uh, the the J. A. Bayona, the one you watched for was that a Spooktober or was that? I think that was a Spooktober. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a Spooktober. Spooktober. Nobody asked you. <laughs> <laughs> Number three. Let's let's see here. Kids in horror. I guess Danny Torrance. Yeah, Danny yeah. Torrance is. You can't go wrong with him. Um, You can't go right with him either, as Dr. Sleep tells us. Number five, or number four, uh, I'm going to go with Bev from uh, It, the the remake, part one. And then number number five, the final kid in horror. Oh, let's just go with, oh, here's here's a, a John Carpenter connection. The kid from The Ward. I think it's really interesting that you picked, I, I gave you the prompt, top five kids in horror, and you didn't go with creepy kids in horror. You just went with kids, and it's very good. I like this. Well, um, you, 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 I yeah, didn't, you, you, I know. Yeah. And I, But that just tells you, I mean, there's a big space in horror to go to. Like, you could just focus on creepy kids. You could just focus on, you could probably even focus on final girls just by themselves. You know, you could. There's also a fun movie called The Final Girl, which right. uh, is very fun. I I will say I I think Damien has to be on the list though. Like in my top five, Damien's on the list. See, I haven't seen that movie. Uh, the, the he's literally the Antichrist. I mean, come on. I also think because see, like when I think about kids in horror, that's what I'm thinking about. I would I think about even though he only shows up at the very end. I'd say Rosemary's Baby. I kind of actually find it hard not to say Danny Torrance and the twins as a separate entry. Oh, yeah, the twins. The little creepy I forgot girls. that one has like double yeah. creepy, triple creepy girls. I think Danny Torrance is a great character. I do think that people have abused and misused the creepy kids trope. I mean, I think about The Ring. I think about... Just like Danny Torrance himself was this. abused and misused leading yeah. up to Dr. Sleep. Yeah, so I don't... Yeah, it, it's just not my favorite. And I also just don't like it when female characters are boiled down to just like moms. And I felt like Heather had a lot of things that she could say about this character that weren't related to her her status as a mom to Dylan. And I just, I don't know, I, I just didn't appreciate that as much. I feel like if they were going to have this element, they should have hit it less hard. Yeah, so Robert England and I've already mentioned Wes Craven was it, played himself in this film. Robert England also plays himself as well as playing Freddy. I can't really think of a lot of films where Robert England has played 
himself without some sort of like prosthetic or makeup on. So that was really cool. The other original is uh, Nancy's father. So the actor who played Don Thompson, Heather Thompson's dad, is John Saxon. He's in several scenes. And the story goes that Wes Craven wanted Johnny Depp back too. But was, according to the story, too timid to ask him because he was such a big star, right? And the the story further goes that Johnny Depp has said, I would have said yes, obviously. Why wouldn't I do that? And so I I wonder through watching this if whatever his intended role was, you know, taken over by uh, John Saxon, Nancy's father. Hard to know. So just to wrap up my discussion of this, our discussion of this, I would say like this is considered to be one of the best nightmare films. It didn't do as well when it first came out, but it is sort of like become one of the one of the like horror films that people point back to when they point back to this franchise. It, a lot of people think it's better than the original. I actually personally like the original better. I think it's scarier in a lot of ways. And I, I don't know, like I, I, I really do like this film, but like, I just don't see it as like being the definitive nightmare film for me, but it it is really interesting. And I think that it brings us into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which was specifically Wes Craven and reality bending horror, because I think that New Nightmare is one of the first films that Wes Craven really started experimenting with straight up meta horror. He obviously had elements of it in his earlier films, but I don't think any of his films really had just like the straightforward, yeah, this is a movie about making a horror movie that this particular one has. Andy, what's your experience with Wes Craven as a director, writer, not much. I mean, uh, I saw Last House on the Left. Um, that was his first one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw, I saw the uh, the remake. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think here because I've seen Red Eye. I've uh, have not seen the Serpent and the Rainbow. I've seen the remake of People Under the Stairs. <laughs> yeah, I really have not seen a lot of Wes Craven. If you were to describe Wes Craven's particular brand of horror from what you have seen, how would you describe it? I mean, I I would describe it as as shock horror. Okay. What do you mean by that? There's lots of rape, sexual assault, lots of sexual exploitation of the workers or the uh, female actresses. Very uncomfortable to watch. Now, I would say, I will say, A Nightmare on Elm Street definitely goes more mainstream and less over-the-top, purposefully uh, shocking. Although it does have its shocking elements. I can't help but think of the bath scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, again, nothing nothing even close to, like, even close to what you, what The Last House on the Left did. Sam, what? how would you characterize your experience and what you think about Wes Craven's horror? As Andy mentioned... Wes Craven did Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes 1 and 2, none of which I've seen. I also haven't seen the movie he did, Shocker, which is about somebody who is put to death via the electric chair and things happen. But I do remember being it being a really big sensationalist news story because that got into... It went beyond horror and began to touch on the real social issue of the death penalty. I haven't seen Vampire in Brooklyn, which is his movie with Eddie Murphy. I have seen Red Eye, which is his movie with Cillian Murphy, who I believe is no relation to Eddie. 
I believe, <laughs> as far as I know, which is a really interesting horror on a plane, some notes of terrorism. I also haven't seen Music of the Heart, which is, it's it's not a horror movie. It's really great. It's got Meryl Streep. So, I, I, Oscar Beatty horror? I don't, it's not a horror movie. That's the joke here, is yeah. that he made one movie that is distinctly not a horror movie. It I feels think like of, the inverse of most directors' right. careers where they make the one movie that's a horror movie, yeah. like, and he makes the one movie that's I, not a horror movie. I, I guess the point here is, is that, you know, Andy talks about this exploitative, shocky horror that he does, which is very true. And he's definitely seen as one of the masters of the genre, but he's the guy who did Scream to me, really. Like, I know he did Nightmare, and that's important, but the guy who did Scream, come on. It's like Kevin Williamson. He did other things, but he's the guy who did Dawson's Creek. You know, it, it and and it's weird to say that I think about Scream as the franchise that he's most known for over Nightmare on Elm Street because that's silly, but I still do. No, I understand. It's like that. he had to do Nightmare on Elm Street to give us the goods later, right? And I definitely want to talk about how Scream connects these two films that we're talking about. But the thing about Wes Craven that I wanted to mention, I this does plug into what both of you were saying about the violence in Wes Craven's films is he loves to use this meta horror to implicate the audience in the violence. Like he likes to talk about how we have this appetite for horror, right? We have this appetite for these kinds of movies and this kind of violence. There's this great scene in New Nightmare where Heather is being interviewed by someone on a talk show and they bring out Robert England to in the Freddy costume to like surprise her and the entire audience is like cheering and like saying you know we want Freddy back and you know like all of this stuff like he's the real star of these films and it's just such an interesting scene that shows like like these people they want they see him as like this hero they want the violence they want to connect with that like primal type of catharsis that we get from horror films and I think that that continues, especially in Scream, this idea that like we as an audience are complicit in the acts that we're seeing because we have this like lust for it, this need for it. We keep watching. Yeah, yeah. We've all seen Funny Games. We 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 know the twist. Well, and the the great thing about the beginning, the the cold open of Scream Two, is set in a movie theater. It's the the yeah. We'll talk about that stab. The, right, uh, stab. Yeah, the stab franchise. But, but also, as we'll talk <laughs> about in with the faculty, and then with the Gail Weathers movie, basically Courtney Cox's character. There's a lot of that press implication via the press, via mm-hmm, the media, mm-hmm. right? and that comes up. I think that comes up in New Nightmare, sort of tangentially, because we get all of those like press uh, things about like the murders, and they're all connected and sensationalized because they're connected to the nightmare series, but there is also this conversation that goes on in all three of these movies, I think about like true crime and like the way that we as people are obsessed with it and the way that it's propagated by the media. But yeah, let's actually talk about the faculty, which came out in 1998. I wanted to structure it this way, not just because I wanted to talk about Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson separately before we talked about scream together, but also because the faculty technically was written before Scream was. Yes. And I would like to call this this segment here, American Horror Story, The Weinsteins. That's kind of the problem with the 90s. You cannot talk 
it's hard to even have any conversation about film in the 90s without bringing them up because of the role that they had, the outsized role that they had. You know, it, it's whether your career was threatened or ruined because of them or your career was made because of them, as an example. So the faculty is based on a script written by David Wechter and Bruce Kimmel. Now, the Weinsteins bought the film and gave it to Kevin Williamson to rewrite, which is a very common practice. And as we know, when rewrites happen, it's usually the original writer and the last person who rewrote who's going to get writing credits. And if you've looked at the Bond franchise, this is a comedy of errors when it comes to who's credited for writing. But in this case, the Weinsteins decided that they wanted Kevin Williamson to have sole writing credit. So they went back to David Wechter and Bruce Kimmel and paid them again to waive their rights to a screenplay credit and to get a story credit instead so they could bill the faculty as written by Kevin Williamson. They wanted him to direct, but Kevin Williamson did not want to direct because he was simultaneously creating his own horror film, an adaptation called Killing Mrs. Tingle, which was renamed, thanks Columbine, to Teaching Mrs. Tingle. And so that was when the Weinsteins decided that they were going to hire it dude, Robert Rodriguez. Oh. Yeah. Right. So so just just be clear, Robert Rodriguez is the famous director of the 96% on Rotten Tomatoes Spy Kids. That is correct. Absolutely. Who who was probably I mean, at this point he is he is more well known for his movie El Mariachi and probably better known for his remake of El Mariachi Desperado. Which by the way, for my money the weird thing where you make a sequel that's also a remake, I would take El Mariachi and Desperado over Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. I Whoa. think, yeah, El Mariachi and Desperado are a better version of creating a sequel second draft than Evil Dead 2 is, I'm telling you. To be fair, the budget between El Mariachi and Desperado... The the budget differential is exponential. But, but wouldn't it be funny? <laughs> wouldn't it be funny? Seven thousand dollars, Sam. Okay, but don't you kind of want to see a version of Evil Dead with Antonio Banderas? Would watch. I would watch it. Or 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 a version of Desperado with Bruce Campbell. I'm not picky. I mean, at the very least, at the very least, let's redo Once Upon a Time in Mexico with Bruce Campbell instead of Johnny Depp. Tell us about this film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. The faculty? <laughs> so, the, the, very simply, the faculty is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, except it's sold as a paradigm in which something is happening to the faculty. And a group of plucky Gen X students have to go up against the killers, not the band. The, this the, is in a high school context. I yes. feel like we should definitely mention that. <laughs> yes, it is. And and uh, and I'm going to tell you about the cast here in a minute. But before we do, there are some real stars on the side of the faculty and some real stars on the side of the actors. But I have to tell you, there is an MVP in this film, <laughs> the true star of the film. River and Joaquin's sister, Summer Phoenix, 
as, and this is true, her character name is the fuck you girl. Because <laughs> there are, there are two great. characters. There are two background characters. The fuck you boy and the fuck you girl. They are dating and they are having knockdown drag out fights throughout the film where they are yelling fuck you at each other. The punchline is, you know something's bad when they are friendly with each other. You know they have become pod people. This combines my favorite genre of humor, as I've talked about before, which is background humor, where things are happening in the background and not in the foreground that are hilarious. These are people who are constantly fighting in the background. It is a very, very funny joke. And that moment where they walk out like hand in hand smiling at each other and like you see the look of horror on the the scariest thing in the movie. Yeah, Yeah, that's it's it is a perfect horror moment. And it, it took so little to create that moment is the thing like. It works very, very well. So what's really great, and, and I mean, th- this this movie is not good. I'm going to be very upfront about that. It's a lot of fun, though. Here's why. The school nurse is played by Robert Rodriguez MVP, Selma Hayek. You have Dark Phoenix herself, Famke Jansen, who does a very Dark Phoenix-like turn. And as I said to Tessa... Did the faculty do a better version of Dark Phoenix? This is a question that comes up constantly in our discussions yeah. of things that have a semi-Dark Phoenix storyline. You have Piper Laurie. You have B.B. Newworth. You have the T-1000 himself, Robert Patrick, as the football coach. This is clearly his audition for his role in Peacemaker. And as the science teacher, Mr. Daily Show himself, John Stewart. A very, very baby-faced John oh, Stewart. Oh, it's so great. Not, he, he used to be an actor. actor, you guys. He was not a good actor. He was a better MTV host than he was actor, and he was definitely a better Daily Show host than an actor. That trend was sadly broken when he started a podcast. He is not a better podcast host than he was Daily Show. I think he really peaked there. It, it's great. I mean, it's, it's like all kinds of talent. And then on the student side, you have Jordana Brewster. Leah Duvall, whose career never really went where it probably could have. You have Josh Hartnett, Usher Raymond, and Elijah Wood. The thing about this is, is, is I really like this thing that Jordana Brewster said in retrospect. She said it was the inverse of Fast and Furious. She, she said, I was like, this is a small movie about cars. It's a really fun summer project. With the faculty, it was like, you guys, this is going to be huge. Look at all these successes around us. Like, she's all that and scream. And then it turned out it wasn't so huge. But it was a cult classic, so that's really cool. This feels like the definition of a cult classic film. Yeah, this movie flopped. As it, it should have. <laughs> it had all, it had, but it had all of these actors behind it. It had this awesome soundtrack that we'll talk about in a bit. It had Robert Rodriguez. I mean, it just didn't work. What does work about it? Well, Stokely, Clea Duvall's character, is the original Randy. So the thing about Scream to understand is this is Wes Craven plus Kevin Williamson. If you get the meta from Wes Craven, you get a lot of specifics from Kevin Williamson. So Stokely is the sci-fi nerd. She knows all of the tropes. Once the kids realize what's happening. She says, oh, this is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This is pod people. Yeah, and I I love that this is more sci-fi horror than straight-up horror, which I didn't know going into this because we watched Mm -hmm. it together. 
And I just assumed that it would be more like Nightmare or Scream or more of a slasher type of horror, which right. it does have slasher elements in it. But it is definitely more of a sci-fi. It's more metafiction about sci-fi than it is about horror. And the other thing is, and, and I read a little bit about this. I wasn't really thinking about it when I watched it. But thinking about it in retrospect, it really is. I, I'm going to call this mommy horror. <laughs> because here's why. Like I said, I read about this and I'm like, okay, that's accurate. I didn't see it, but in retrospect, okay. There's a lot of like, you know, birthing. Yeah. Imagery, some swimming pool stuff, some question. Is alien mommy horror? That's the point. Because the original monster is a woman. And she's a queen. Right. Who births the others. It's it's the right, right, see right. I thought of it as the vampire thing, right? You kill the head vampire, you kill them all, but this is very like hive mommy queen kind of situation. I mean, I definitely think that the coach Robert Patrick's character is like the slasher. He's supposed to be yeah. like the slasher person, but a lot of the horror in But he's also film... a toxic masculinity too, oh, which yeah. is really meant to be like a like a there's of... some things thought out here that aren't really expressed very well, I don't think, but they're definitely there. Right. And people who are better at horror than I am picked up on them and have talked about them. Right. I do think a lot of the body horror in this does come from Fomka Jansen and BB Newworth though. Yeah. So I do see I can definitely see those two as being like more mommy. Yeah. Like type of figures. Yeah, I hang around all you, you know, never mind. We're not going to, I'm not going there. I'm not going to say <laughs> it. I'm not going to say it. Those are definitely two actors that have been called mommy by several people. What else? <laughs> what else? I mean, like, what other <laughs> stuff do you got to say? The soundtrack. Yeah. Right? So there's a cover of Another Brick in the Wall by Class of 99 that plays a lot. Creed, Creed does a cover of the Alice Cooper song, I'm 18. Which, by the way, the best use of I'm 18 is in Freaks and Geeks. But there's Offspring, Garbage, Soul Asylum, Stabbing Westward, Cheryl Crow, Sean Mullins, Oasis. This is that time period where they were like, let's take all the cool people and have them put whatever song they can come up with in five minutes on a soundtrack and we'll sell units. The soundtrack might be better than the movie, but that brings me to the Gen X of it all. Which is, these are all Gen X kids, and I just need to say, what in the Gen X is going on with Josh Hartnett in this movie? The least likely leading actor of this time period, Josh Hartnett. I have nothing good to say about him as an actor, and I do not understand what this character is. I don't understand his stupid hair. I I just understand nothing about this character. Sam spitting fire. He's a drug dealer. What more do you want to say about him? He's the, he's the stereotype drug dealer bad boy. I mean, okay, so here's the thing. I get Usher. <laughs> I get that Usher is just, I hate this jock character. I get the other jock character who wants to be taken seriously because he realizes that if not, this is his life going to peak. I get that. I get nerd boy Elijah Wood. I get. Who is doing some actually really good yeah, acting in this? I get Clea Duvall's manic pixie dream girl character. I get her. She's like the Gen X version. So, I mean, like the the manic pixie dream girl is really the stuff of the adult Gen Xer or the younger baby boomer. I'm trying to remember exactly. Yeah, Crow would be a baby boomer. 
Anyway, this is like a prototype of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I understand that. I was a youth. I was an adolescent. This is a character I would have dreamed up. She's hot and she reads sci-fi? Yes. Oh, girls don't like sci-fi. And she, and and she, she wears mi- and, and she, she wears heavy eye makeup? And she might be gay. Yeah, it, this movie is very queer baby. I do have to say that. Well. Because it implies very heavily that she might be a lesbian at the beginning. Right. And then there's some scenes that are very queer baby. But see, all of my best friends really in high school. But all of my best friends might have been a lesbian. That's true. I'm just so, saying Jennifer's body yeah. realizes this premise much better than this film does. Well, but that's the thing. Would Jennifer's body exist without this movie? That's absolutely true. I actually did think of Jennifer's body several times during this movie. And Jordana Brewster is the Gen X version of Molly Ringwald's character in The Breakfast Club. And I think we can leave that there. And uh, speak just quickly speaking of Jennifer's body, before I forget, bring up, because there's another horror movie that uh, fits nicely into this meta discussion that would not exist without without the faculty, I believe, and um, definitely not without Scream, and definitely not without the new Nightmare. There's a horror movie called Detention. I've heard of this. I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. And it is it is very very good. Uh, it is shockingly good. It stars Josh Josh Hutcherson, which the Hartnet kept reminding me about this. <laughs> but it is it takes place in a high school where a copycat killer named after the movie villain Cinderella stalks the student body. All right. It is, it is wonderful. And just like Scream, they they get a um, an unexpected comedian to play the principal in um, one super creep, Dane Cook. Oh. Not so unexpected now, I think. Maybe uh, at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in 2011? Yeah, no. At that time, I, it would have been very unexpected. But um, yeah, yeah. I just, I just, while I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, I need, I need to make sure more people know about this. This is one of the movies I own on Blu-ray. It is very good. I think, and and I mean, Andy's point earlier about how this is a genre that allows people to break in. I think that the faculty is kind of partially that with Kevin Williamson, but I think the other side, like the other half of horror films is the way that Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven, especially when they start working together in 96, which is two years earlier than this, really reshape the way that big budget mainstream horror happens. And, you know, I've mentioned before the role of the, the role of the press, the way that we are implicated in some different ways, as, as you mentioned, Tessa. But like at the end of this film, the film doesn't end with the end of the horror, which is where most horror films end. It has a coda, and the coda deals with the press. Like, how, if, if this happened, how would it be handled in the media after it happened? Which is a really interesting epilogue. I think, at this point, Gail Weathers has already existed, but I think that were it not for his work on the faculty, I don't think Gail Weathers would have existed. Because, yeah, even though the movie came out after Scream, these were things that were being developed and thought about before Scream. And there is a very Gail Weathers-like character at the end of this. She's not named. She's obviously not a main character. But, like, the way she's asking these questions is very reminiscent of, like, Gail Weathers. But let's talk a little bit about Kevin Williamson. Especially I wanted to talk about if Wes Craven is sort of this horror icon, Kevin Williamson... 
is known for his horror, but he is also very well known for his teen drama. And I think that this is very important when talking about the faculty and when talking about Scream. It's also really important because in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about another Kevin Williamson horror creation. The Vampire Diaries. The Vampire Diaries. Yeah. So people might know Kevin Williamson from Scream, but they also might know him from Dawson's Creek, which we talked about a few weeks ago when we did our James Vanderbeek episode, and pretty much any teen show on the CW. He's either had a hand in writing or a hand in producing Vampire Diaries we've mentioned, and shout out to Elise, he was also the writer for the very short-lived Time After Time reboot, the TV show on the CW, the Time After Time reboot, the TV show that Elise did not watch. So the big thing when I think about Williamson and his relationship to teen drama is, one, he has this obsession with remixing his own teen life in television. Like, he writes characters that are sort of based on him and people that he knew. The most straightforward example of this is Dawson's Creek. But he also is credited a lot of times with the invention of the elevated teen, like the the teenagers who talk like adults, the teenagers who know all the pop culture references that honestly, teenagers probably wouldn't know. The teenagers that are very literate, the teenagers that are very articulate. We get to see these a lot in the CW, in Vampire Diaries, in Dawson's Creek, in Gossip Girl, like Riverdale especially. Like there's this legacy of these teenagers. And I think it's important as we talk about the faculty and then in a minute when we talk about Scream to talk about the role of teenagers in these films What do you think about Williamson's sort of bent towards teenage horror in this way? It's effective. Why do you think it's effective? Okay, okay. First of all, one, from a a marketing standpoint, a a connection standpoint, a making money standpoint, it's super effective because who goes to watch horror movies? Clearly, teenagers do. Teens love horror movies. It's, you, you know, it's... I mean, not just horror movies. They go to the movie theaters in general. It, but it works as effective when it's like this bright day, daytime out. School is a setting that you can't really leave willingly. You're kind of trapped with people that you would rather not be trapped with. You don't really get to choose your surroundings. A lot of heightened tension is what I'm hearing from you. And there's always, uh, you know, teens are bad with emotional regulation. Like, it, they, it, it, it just... It just works because you can see a teenager doing something stupid. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's that's the truth though. Like, you know, so it works from a a selling standpoint because you're getting the teenagers going in groups, right, and having a great time. It works in the drama standpoint. It just, yeah, it, everything about teens in danger works and people who hate teens love to see them in danger so it works on that end too (laughs) a little bit of schadenfreude there well the other thing too is you think about nancy from nightmare you think about laurie strode these are movies made by boomers they think about their i mean you you always think about your own experience when you, you just can't not and so these two final girls are both they're just average teenage girls and, you know, they go steady with boys and they babysit and they do their homework in their bedroom and they listen to music and they're the most boring people on the face of the earth, says the Gen Xer, who, by the way, knows that Gen Xers are absolutely 1000% cooler than you could ever hope to be. 
Mm. We are much smarter, much better. We have much more fascinating <laughs> inner lives. We listen to better music. We know much more than you do. Retire and go away. Please, boomers. <laughs> this is one way. It's, it's, it's not directed down to millennials. This is a direct reaction to all of these depictions of teenagers that we saw growing up. Like the breakfast club. You can only be one thing. Well, that's stupid. Which is why Joey on Dawson's Creek is the poor kid, but also smarter than everybody else. She's not going to be Ally Sheedy that they're going to give a makeover to at the end. Right? That's, that's why Jen. I hadn't thought about yeah. this. Yeah. Well, that's because you're a millennial. <laughs> no, I, I just hadn't thought about Kevin Williamson creating this this elevated teen in response to like Laurie Strode. But everything's a response, right? Yeah. No, I mean, like whether you think, I mean, that's like the thing. It's it's there whether you think about it or not. And so it's okay to not think about it. But if you dig into it. So I, I think that that's the thing about the elevated teen, right? And so the unfortunate thing is the only place you can go after the ele- elevated teen is the the meta teen. Which is Riverdale. <laughs> Oh God! Make it stop. actually. Riverdale has both the elevated teen and the meta teen, yeah. so it's it's interesting. I agree with both of you. I think Williamson is really great at creating and showing us these really complex and interesting characters, and the way that he's able to tell you who a character is in like very brief interactions. I think a lot about the first scene in Scream that I want Andy to talk about here in a second, because he's able to create stakes in that in that scene in that interaction between a character that we never see again for the rest of the for the rest of the film but we care about her within the matter of minutes and so it is very interesting the way he's able to just like here's a character that you care about that's interesting that has stuff going on in a way that we had I hadn't really seen in Craven before simultaneously Craven is really good at scaring us really good at making us laugh at at horror as well very interested in in this idea of like the exploitative like just just bloodbath that is you know his horror films but they're both very invested in metafiction in different ways and so like Williamson is the guy who knows everything about movies knows every I mean because we get that in Dawson's too right Dawson is obsessed with movies and so like you know he knows everything about movies Wes Craven knows everything about horror I think that they are perfect when they work together, which brings us to Scream. Andy, I think this is the perfect blend of the two creators. It is the pinnacle of everything that either one of them have ever done. Do you agree with me? What did you think about this movie? If you have not seen Scream recently, I highly recommend doing it. It is insanely methodical in both its script and its setting. I I genuinely believe this is the perfect scary movie and I just thought it was just kind of a funny-ish slasher before. Th- this might be my my new favorite like scary movie to to pull out. Like I I cannot believe how much I enjoyed this movie. It's so good. It's one of my favorites too. This this movie it it's about the killer who's kind of unnamed in in the first movie, but we come to know him as Ghostface, uh, classic scream villain who's. Uh, I mean, classic horror slasher villain who seems to be know about the tropes of scary movies, plays into those tropes, and kind of uh, tries to do a few things differently. Like, it's so hard to describe this without making it sound like a typical slasher. Uh, This movie was originally called Scary Movie, but let's 
let's talk about the opening scene, which Sam, did did you see Scream in theaters? No. Were were, were you cognizant of the marketing around it? No. Um, uh, okay. I, I, I mean, really I know, know what it is, it's... but but not at that point, no. Right, right, right. But I, I just want to know if Drew Barrymore was a big part of the marketing for this. I, I mean, I think they pulled a psycho with this one. I think they they tried. I mean, I mean, that's part of the self-referential meta-ness of this is that that's what the first, uh, what the cold open is. So the, the opening scene is just fantastic. It's Drew Barrymore. By the way, uh, before I even saw Scream, I, I've seen Scary Movie 1 and 2, like, a lot. So not not Scary Movie 1 and 2, the um, the working titles for Scream, but the uh, the parody films. And right. I have to say, I, I, am, I am shocked. But, yeah, it's uh, Drew Barrymore. She's Home Alone. Huge uh, teen idol Drew Barrymore. She gets a phone call, answers it, and says, what's your favorite scary movie? Like it's it's creepy she's she's introduced kind of right away like this is in any other film this is the end of a different horror movie it it almost works as its own short story like it could be a short film yes yes and uh of of course uh within 7 minutes drew barrymore is dead very violently too like they they do not pull punches at the beginning of this movie they really do not and i want to say i know that scream as a uh, screenplay is taught in film writing schools because it's considered one of the few perfect scripts i believe it's scream and peewee herman's big adventure like for a three-act structure it's just a an exemplar of that i just really just thought scream was just like oh yeah no it's it's a slasher but I, I love that the villain, like in that first scene, first of all, we know, even though Drew Barrymore character dies in seven minutes, like we know about this character by the end of the scene. Like we know who she is. We know what she cares about, which I think is Williamson. I think that's him putting his character work in there. But then we also get this like, you know more about the killer, even though you have no idea who he is, because like he's a pe- he's a pendant for horror films. He's like criticizing her for her horror film choices. A, a scream, scream is a, a perfect movie. Uh, it goes in. It starts. It has this beautiful uh, act one twist where the main character, the actual main character, uh, where, where where Sydney, her boyfriend, comes in the window. Right after she got attacked by Ghostface and he drops the phone. And again, it's another thing of that's the end of any other horror movie, right? You you have this. It's she has him arrested because she believes that he's the killer. There's this great dramatic tension. It's so it's so weirdly self-referential that I, I love it. The character Randy, who we, we talked about a little bit before, who works at a video store played by Jamie Kennedy. So there, there's this great scene where uh, Jamie Kennedy is giving the rules to a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going, going through like, okay, listen, no sex. If you're a virgin, you live. And the thing, the thing that I found really fascinating about this was, uh, this is, ha- you know, of course, happening while Neve Campbell is losing her virginity, and also the movie kind of implies that the killer came around because 
of of her uh, insistence on on staying sexually pure. Yeah, it it's interesting the relationship between her and the killers as we as we find out like because there's a lot of different motivations but like one of the motivations that they give is just like we wanted to do it. Like we just wanted to. We wanted to see what would happen. And they even make reference to this is saying like oh it's the 90s. Uh, right. Motives are so are so boring or so passé or something like yeah, I also wanted to praise Ski Ulrich's performance, uh, who plays her boyfriend, and then, you know, obviously later we find out that he's the killer or one of the killers. That scene with him coming through the window is iconic, and he actually recreates it in Riverdale, which is great. Like, there is a scene where he climbs through a window with uh, Match and Amic is on the other side of the window, and it, it is just so perfectly done. Uh, yeah, there's there's so many little things. The... Um... Also, there, there's like a mention of how it's useless to like yell, to yell, to tell people not to do something. And then the uh, Gail Weathers character sets up a camera in the house and there's a 30 second delay. And and uh, the cameraman is watching the killer sneak up behind behind Randy and they're, they're yelling at him to, to turn around. It's. What did you think about Gail Weathers and the way this movie talks about the press, since that's something we talked about in the other two films? Oh, God. Um, I mean, the problem here is that Gail is correct, right? At the, like, 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 it's kind of like, oh, no, the, 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 it, it's, showing, it's showing both sides of the story, right? The Leave Schreiber's character was accused of raping and murdering uh, Nev Campbell's mom a year ago. Gail Weathers, uh, Courtney Cox herself, friends, uh, just uh, be- does not believe this. Uh, the-, the story is she's trying to aim for a Pulitzer Prize based on, you know, proving that this uh, this man who she believes is innocent. Like, she's correct about that. But she's also so unlikable as somebody who is just stomping, stomping over every boundary she can. And and it feels so cathartic when Nev punches her in the face, <laughs> because you see from from the perspective of of Nev Campbell, like she's grieving, and this and this freaking reporter just will not leave her alone. Yeah, I think she's excellently played. This is actually, honestly, my favorite Courtney Cox character. I mean, I like her more than I like Monica and Friends. To be completely honest with you. Um, I mean, well, as Monica a, and Friends is really boring. As a character, I mean, like she's very, she's much more interesting in this character as well. And of course, she, along with Nev Campbell, are some of the only characters to survive throughout the entire Scream franchise so far. We have not seen Scream Five. That's true, Sam. What did you which think? I, which I think is weird, by the way. I let's let's hi everybody. If if you've made three, four, five of a franchise. Here's what you should never do. Never name a sequel the same thing as the first movie. It's confusing. You know, it's funny. I learned yesterday, completely removed from from our discussion today, that Scream 5 is actually stylized as Scream. What a stupid thing to do. How dumb. Deputy Dewey. Oh, yeah, Deputy Come Dewey. On. I I have to say... um. Were Courtney Cox and Arquette dating at this time? Uh, yes, I believe if, so. If, if they, if they were, it is it is a great meta use to like have 
the clear tension be there uh, to be using that to their advantage. Uh, also, Deputy Dewey is fantastic. Mom said when I'm wearing this badge, you you, you will show me respect. And I just, you know, that I just want to point out that, that David Arquette is one of the acting Arquettes. The, the great Rosanna Arquette, she of the Toto song, Rosanna. She of the entire Peter Gabriel album, Us, I believe. And then Patricia Arquette, who did great work on the show Medium and other projects. And uh, and let's also talk about how Amanda Seyfried slash her uh, her clone, her f- Rose McGowan, did on this because I like 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 I was like, wait, I know Amanda Seyfried is way too young to be this character, but it she looks so much like Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, this this movie you could definitely get '90s pop culture bingo easily like several different like your bingo card would have so many things that happen in this movie it's it's a good time people ideas yeah it's 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 very zeitgeisty but it's good that's the thing right you can either try most times you can either try to be zeitgeisty or you can try to be a good movie this does both and it's aware that it's doing both that's how you win at meta and let's just talk a little bit about Scream 2, which was somehow thrown together in less than a year. Like, like it's always funny to me when the time between the actual releases of the movies and the time within the worlds of the movies is longer. So the, the, the funny thing is, so you asked me if I saw Scream in theaters. I didn't. I saw it when I was in college, and I know I actually saw it. It would have at least been 98. So, I mean, I saw it a little after the fact, but but I saw the first two movies both while I was in college. And being in college when you see Scream 2 is a great experience because, you know, it's the college Scream. It's Scream, the college years. I have to say the opening scene of Scream 2, I don't think it's oh. as much of a masterwork as the opening of, of Scream, the first Scream film, but it is more terrifying to me than the first um the first opening of the first scream because it's it is people watching stab which is the film that they made of nev campbell's character sydney's experience but it involves someone getting murdered in a movie theater while horror fans are like all dressed in ghost faced and screaming and and you know like clapping and applauding and so this feels very much like Wes craven again saying like okay we're implicated in this like you the audience you want this Right, and there's this, uh, there, there's a, a conversation that happens in the early years, which, or the early times, which, uh, with uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer herself, Cece, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, just shocking that she was there. They're in a film class, and they're talking about, well, if if this people are these people are copycatting based on a story, like the med- is the media responsible for that? And and the answer is, I mean, the answer is no, but. Also, Gail Weathers kind of has a redemption arc in this film. I, I have to say that Scream 2 is is a much more set-piece-driven horror movie. But you also, like, look, and there's baby Portia de Rossi there. And and there's baby Timothy Oliphant there. And it is it is just as fun. There is a, such a great, scary, tense scene in a cop car. Yeah, there, there there's a tense scene in a theater a, th- a theater stage, which I have to say, like a theater, not a movie theater, 
stage, which I have to say is brilliant. Uh, I feel like Wes Craven is is sitting there cackling as he gets to do these weird setups, but it, it is not as good as Scream. I do want to go back to the cold open of two again. We, we, we kind of went away from it, but I want to come back to it because it's, it's really important to point out that the idea of a horror film, the idea that you're watching you, the audience are watching people watch something in the theater and then the thing that those people are watching happens to them. It, it, I don't think it gets brought up a lot, but it's the John Landis and Michael Jackson film, Thriller. That's what the cold open of Scream 2 is a callback to Thriller. I, I just appreciate that it's a call it's a call to the idea that, you know, that stab is a white is a dumb white person movie. The person who's murdered, that's what she says like before She's just like, why did you take me to this white person's film? Yeah, that's that was very funny. Right. I mean, that's what Michael Jackson tells his date the whole time. Like, what, what are you so scared about? Ooh. And like tries to like freak her out. Like he said, it's where the popcorn thing comes from, the right? Popcorn because memes, he yeah. knows this is stupid. I yeah, I think the first Thriller, two Scream more than films, just a gif. The first two Scream films are very good. You're right, Andy, that Scream 2. I mean, it. It would be impossible to be better than Scream 1. And Scream 2 doesn't exist without the first Scream. So, I mean, it makes sense. But Scream 2 in and of itself is a very good movie, too. Can you go back and title this episode, I Scream, You Scream, We All Scream for Horror Movies? (laughs) I feel like Scream now. The first Scream, one, it does not rely on, on jump scares. Two, I feel like this is a horror movie that my wife Sarah would like. I know a lot of people who don't like horror who like Scream. So yes, yes, exactly. This this I'm putting in in the uh, same rankings as like Jennifer's Body. It is very violent though. So if violence is the thing that you object to, this is not a good one for you. I I I really don't think it's that violent. Like I think the opening scene is the most violent part of it. Yeah, yeah. Just just like what a fantastic reference movie. Getting the Fonz to play the principal though is. Oh man, that is that that is a great choice. I I love this movie. I am now going to buy this movie on Blu-ray. Any last thoughts on the partnership between Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson? Good. I mean, yeah. Oh, oh, I do think uh, in Scream Two, there is a scene where the cast is sitting on a in front of a fountain, and to me, that is such clearly a call to friends. Yeah. The other the uh, one that I thought of as you were like describing this film to me is that I had completely forgotten that Randy worked in a video store, which seems to me to be a connection to Dawson's Creek. I mean, I know Dawson's Creek came out later, but the fact that Dawson works in a video store and talks a lot about movies and like references them in this way, it seems very, very scream like. Are you even a Gen Xer if you don't work in a video store like between Tarantino, not an Xer? I believe Dante and Randall questionable whether or not they are and Dawson and Pacey. Like it is the go-to job. Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven more, please more, more of the two. Yeah. I mean, Wes Craven is dead, but still <laughs> you're like, uh, if anyone was going to come double back, tap, <laughs> if anyone was going to come back, it would be Wes Craven. <laughs> I mean, 
The whole plot of the new nightmare is they bring him back from the dead, Tessa. <laughs> Next week, Spooktober, the son of Spooktober, continues with our episode on creature features. Melissa of the Wild Pretty Things pod is going to join us to talk about the host, the thing, the one by John Carpenter, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. So join us next week for more Spooktober, Son of Spooktober content. Thank you for coming on today, Andy. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can you can find me online on Twitter at uh, Andy Noted. And, of course, you can always find me on the backlog of Monkey Off My Backlog and future episodes of Monkey on My Backlog, like the future Andy's Assigns, where I make Sam listen to my favorite rock opera. Looking forward to that. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. No comment on the other thing. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I have recently, and by recently I mean this morning, changed my Twitter handle. So you can find me at the Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.